Kent Garrett, welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now 80 years old. We entered Harvard as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. Our guest is Jeffrey Stone. He is the Edward H. Levi Distinguished Service Professor at the University of Chicago. After serving as a law clerk to Justice William J. Brennan, Jr. of the Supreme Court, he joined the faculty of the University of Chicago Law School in 1973. He has co-authored the upcoming book, A Legacy of Discrimination, The Essential Constitutionality of Affirmative Action, by Jeffrey Stone and Lee Bollinger. I'm joined by 14 of my Harvard classmates. My name is Ron Blau, I live in Newton, Massachusetts, class of 1963, worked in uh, TV and video and writing and still doing some of that, including on a voluntary basis. Pete DeLisavoy, uh, I'm an editor and writer in New Hampshire. I'm from Chicago, so I know where the professor's from. After uh, after Harvard, I, I joined SNCC for over two years in Southwest Georgia, <clears throat> and uh, still visit there off and on. And so I've been aware of the I would even call it schizophrenia about race in this country, uh, or the multiple consciousnesses of it, all my life. So I'm looking forward to the discussion. Uh, Ken Manister, um, I'm in Los Altos, California. Uh, I'm retired uh, law professor at Santa Clara University. Um, I grew up in Hyde Park and South Shore. Uh, practiced law in Chicago for a while with a firm that's now Sidley and Austin and then uh, did uh, early, early uh, Halcyon Days environmental work with the Illinois Attorney General's office before I came to California. Uh, to teach. Bill Collins grew up in Boston area, 20 years in the Navy, nuclear power, and moved to Aiken, South Carolina a while ago to work on nuclear waste cleanup at the Savannah River site. And I'm now retired from all that, but uh, living here with my wife and uh, kids elsewhere. Good morning, uh, Jerry Secundi. I live in Pasadena, California. I'm one of the infamous 18 in Kent's book. Grew up in segregated Washington, D.C., I uh, didn't realize at the time, but I am a result of affirmative action in terms of my education. I'm an environmental lawyer at this point in time and <clears throat> mostly work on climate change, air pollution, water pollution. Nick Bancroft outside of Boston, Medfield, Mass. Um, classmate of these guys, uh, Harvard Business School, uh, two years in the Peace Corps in India, uh, back to Boston, um, investments, wills, trusts, that sort of thing. And I guess uh, Ray today, uh, sort of in my mental background, I'm thinking of Louise Day Hicks, uh, Arthur Garrity, uh, affirmative action, Metco, busing, and all that kind of stuff. Peter Grilly. Um, <clears throat> I'm class of 1963 originally, graduated in 65, uh, grew up in Tokyo, Japan, and have Spent most of my life on Japan-U.S. cultural exchanges. Um, I also live in Massachusetts, like so many of us here. I live in the town of Harvard, about an hour out of Boston. 
Hi, I'm Doug Shapiro. Um, I have uh, I, I live here in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, I've spent most of my life, uh, almost all of it, in fact, um, in some kind of association with universities uh, around the world, including uh, Harvard, Case Western Reserve, the University of Cambridge in England. 15 years uh, in a graduate research uh, department uh, at the University of Puerto Rico, followed by uh, six years as head of the biology department at uh, Eastern Michigan University. I spent a lot of my years uh, interviewing uh, high school applicants for Harvard uh, admissions purposes, uh, and I actually ran the uh, schools committee uh, in a uh, a large Harvard club of Southeastern Michigan, uh, where I oversaw uh, interviewing uh, students. So I've had a lot of experience with, uh, with universities and missions policies. So I'm very interested in today's talk. Okay, John. Oh, hi, I'm John Woodford. I'm born in Chicago, despite what it says in Last Negroes of Harvard, because I did, my hometown is Benton Harbor, Michigan, across the lake, but born at uh, Providence Hospital. And uh, after we got married, or right before we got married, I went to the University of Chicago for one semester when I thought I should learn sociology in addition to literature, but it was so boring. I started, uh, working, I started working in the, at Johnson Publishing Company and that got me into journalism ever since, but lived in Hyde Park and lived in Evanston. And I'm still sort of like a Chicagoan stuck in Detroit area. <laughs> Marcy. I run Clean Air Campaign and it's Open Rivers Project in New York City and it's Archives Project, which works with great federal environmental laws to seek fairer, wiser alternatives to harmful policies and bad public spending priorities. Okay, uh, David McGregor. Hi, um, classmate. Uh, Live in Queens, worked in city planning, and then uh, with an architecture and urban design firm. Um, nodding acquaintance with President Bolliger. Uh, Liz. Hi, I'm Liz Morey. I'm also class of 63 when there was a Radcliffe. Um, I'm from California. I have absolutely no ties to the Chicago area at all. Uh, and one of the things that I'm pursuing somewhat uh, is to get a handle on my enslaving ancestors uh, who all came from Charlottesville and there were a lot of them and there were a lot of enslaved people uh, that they enslaved. So I'm working on that. Um, I'm an almost completely retired clinical psychologist and I live in Tacoma Park right outside of DC. Yay, Jamie Raskin. Um, and yeah. so it's quite wonderful to be at the kind of political center of things, uh, having lived much of my life in Fresno, California. Mason, we can't see you, but we hear you. Can you hear us? I can hear you. I don't know why my uh, picture just shows up as gray. Oh, all right. Well, <laughs> introduce yourself to the professor. Uh, I'm, I am actually class of 62, a year older than these guys. Uh, I initially roomed with, I was born in Chicago. My uh, initial roommate at Harvard was a guy named George Ranney from Chicago. Uh, I have most recently been involved, or for 35 years I was involved in conservation. Now I'm very active in uh, uh, fighting climate change. Uh, right now, maybe the reason my uh, picture is showing up gray is I'm now at my place in Florida, 
uh, and it's very nice to be in shorts and t-shirt and bare feet, but uh, you have to breathe through your mouth because of the uh, miasmic political atmosphere in this state. I guess the uh, psychologists come uh, uh, last around here. How come? <laughs> I, I'm Harvard 63. Uh, I, I'm a, I became a psychologist relatively late in life. There's there something else I really wanted to say, and I just lost track of it. Uh, yes, I know what it was. Affirmative action. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm very much in favor of it, uh, e even though it's gotten so many distortions in this country that it, that it, that it's come out really weird. And, and, uh, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to finding a good way to, uh, uh, support it, uh, in the, in, in the future with, uh, yes, period. Okay. George Allen. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. I'm a semi-retired, uh, practicing lawyer. Uh, I've dealt with issues of uh, discrimination uh, pretty much all my life as a lawyer. All right. And now, Professor Stone, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. What an impressive group. I'm daunted. <laughs> okay. So Lee Bollinger and I were law clerks at the Supreme Court the same year. Um, he was a law clerk for Chief Justice Warren Berger. I was a law clerk to Justice William Brennan. Um, it happened to be the year that Roe v. Wade was decided. Um, so Lee and I have been friends ever since, since we went into academia. Um, and we have published six or seven books together um, over the years. Um, some of them are real books, um, and like this one, and some of them are collections of essays uh, by a range of different scholars from different fields. Um, this one's a real book that the two of us have, have written together. Um, what initiated it was, was Lee. Um, he, when he was the president of the University of Michigan, before he moved to Columbia to be president, um, he was involved in uh, two of the major Supreme Court uh, decisions um, in the early 2000s. Um, and for that reason, he became very visible as a defender of affirmative action. Um, and so Lee and I have a long connection with each other. Um, we've written all these books together. And this seems like a natural one. Also, I should say it's, it's being published um, in a series that I created with Oxford University Press called Inalienable Rights. Um, and I've now published, I think, 25 volumes in the series. So this will be in that. Um, it'll be a short book. Um, books in the series are meant to be accessible uh, and interesting, both to experts and to non-experts. Um, so it'll be only like 240 pages or something like that. Um, but what, what instigated it was Lee called me up, or actually he emailed me, nobody calls anybody anymore. Um, he called, he, Lee emailed me and he said, um, do you want to write a book on affirmative action? And uh, he had already given a lot of thought to it. Um, and I, I think he wanted me on it partly because we've been partners and colleagues for so long, but also because given the role he had played in the two major cases in the 2000s, he didn't want it to look like he was being defensive about his own position. He never said that. That's just by speculation. But anyway, so we, we wrote the book. Um, what motivated it was, of course, the Supreme Court's uh, decision to hear two major affirmative action cases this term, which will be decided presumably sometime in the spring. 
And we wanted to make an argument about why the court's approach to affirmative action over the last 50 years, um, the last 40 years, has been the wrong one. Um, and so the, the main theme of it is to go back to the Bakke decision in 1978. Um, affirmative action was created in this country um, initially by John Kennedy um, when he made a, a public statement about the need for taking affirmative action to, to create equality in the country. Um, and uh, although institutions did it before then, uh, to some degree, it was Kennedy who first put it out there as a, a public goal. And the rationale for it was to address the unfairness and injustice that this country has inflicted, particularly on Black Americans, and that the effects of those uh, immoral actions uh, continue to play out to this day, and that affirmative action would be one of the ways in which to create justice. Um, and that was all anybody talked about with respect to affirmative action until 1978, when the Bakke case came down. Um, in Bakke, um, the court had an affirmative action case before it um, and basically concluded, divide, the court divided sharply. Um, there was no real majority opinion. Uh, four of the justices uh, took the view that Kennedy's position and Johnson's, Lyndon Johnson's position was right, that affirmative action was both necessary to rectify uh, the injustices of our past and that it was constitutional um, for that reason. Um, four of the justices took the view that affirmative action was per se unconstitutional because it was racial discrimination and racial discrimination is unacceptable in light of the Equal Protection Clause. And Justice Lewis Powell cast the deciding vote in the case and he wrote a kind of odd opinion in which he said that he rejected the idea that affirmative action designed to rectify past injustice was justified under the Equal Protection Clause. He said that, like the, like the dissenters, he said that's not an appropriate justification. But he said uh, the goal of creating diversity in higher education uh, was a sufficiently important goal that schools could take into account the race of applicants in order to create a diverse intellectual social environment, which would enhance their educational process. Since Bakke, that has become almost the universal understanding of what affirmative action is about. That's all almost anyone talks about, uh, the diversity rationale. Lee and I have long held the view that that is not the correct justification for affirmative action. There is a value to diversity, clearly, um, but the reality of, of adding minorities as diverse elements of a university is mainly for the benefit of whites, um, because they then have some exposure to people they otherwise would not be in contact with. Um, and so our view was that this was not a, not that it was a wrong justification, but it was not the most powerful justification. And so Lee and I decided to write this book in order to make that argument. And that's the main point of the book, is to say that the, the immoral actions we have taken throughout our history, 
particularly against blacks, um, have caused enormous disadvantage and discrimination that continues to this day. And that one of the important steps we can take to redress that is to provide opportunities for those individuals who have suffered from the effects of both slavery and uh, Jim Crow um, and discrimination that's continued to this day uh, by giving them greater opportunities. And so that's the main thesis of the book. With that, I'll sort of stop. I knew Lee when he was here in Ann Arbor a bit, and um, I agree wholeheartedly. In fact, I, I wrote about it in The Black Scholar, some maybe in the 90s. I thought that the Backey case was really um, uh, taking it, it, it set back affirmative action. I think it was willful and thought out because they, they took the history of racism and the effect of racist oppression out of the formula, as you point out. They took that once that was taken away, because I think they said that unless you could show, uh, you know, in ten, intentional malice and planning to discriminate against the people who brought a, a case to court, uh, anything that was, you might say, you know, class action oriented or towards the oppression of a people couldn't be factored in again. So they left this diversity argument hanging there and people seized on it. And as you say, the diversity argument is um, historically and morally really kind of weak. This, it doesn't, it's just, and it's, it's what we've been left with and we can't really fight with it. We have to overcome, I think we have to go back to um, recognizing the socioeconomic and historical impact of Jim Crow and, and slavery. Otherwise, we can't rectify it. That's exactly, as I said, what, what the thesis of our, our book is. Yeah. And the way the book is structured <clears throat> is the early part of it um, traces that history um, in moderate detail, because the book's short, um, but to try to make clear to people what the reality of our history was, because most people today don't understand it. Um, and I'm by coincidence, I'm teaching uh, our equal protection course this quarter and um, talking about separate but equal at the moment. And one of the things I did very self-consciously in my class yesterday was to spend some time going through for my students some of the elements of the history of discrimination in this country and the awfulness of it and um, the era of, uh, of hanging and uh, of oppression and the point that the effects of that still continue to this day. And I think the students watching their faces were, many of them at least, were kind of fascinated by it. It's like they hadn't really got that. Um, and that was interesting to me to see their, their reactions to it. So I, I think it's really important for people to have a, a, a three-dimensional understanding uh, both our history and our present. And although we've made a lot of progress since Baki in many respects, we had a black president who I hired, by the way, to join the faculty at Chicago when I was dean of the law school um, and we're still friends. Uh, and of course, two, now two, totally three black Supreme Court justices um, and in, you know, through business and through a whole range of areas, um, blacks have become uh, much more successful than was true at the time uh, that Baki was decided, or the time that Brian B. Board of Education was decided. 
Um, but the reality is that under almost any sociological examination, um, blacks as a group in this country are far worse off than whites. And the reason for that, we argue in the book, is because of the history and continuing effect of racial discrimination, and that we simply cannot ignore that as, as a nation. Um, I'll go back a bit to the Supreme Court, if that's okay, because um, again, in Baki, it's important to note that, that Justice Powell was the only one who took the diversity argument, but he was the fifth vote. So he was the deciding vote. None of the other eight justices joined that rationale. But since then, it's become the rationale of the, of the court. <clears throat> in the years since then, uh, the Supreme Court has been sharply divided on affirmative action with a whole series of 5-4 decisions um, in which, as the court has become ever more conservative over those years, with a high percentage of the justices um, going back even to that time, appointed by Republican presidents, um, uh, the, uh, the dissenters have taken very strong positions, uh, like the ones of the dissenters in, in Baki, about why affirmative action is immoral and unconstitutional. And it's been a number of moderate conservatives on the court who have saved affirmative action. People like Anthony Kennedy and Sandra Day O'Connor and David Souter and John Paul Stevens, all appointed by Republican presidents, um, have supported affirmative action um, under the rationale of Baki. And yeah. for that reason, the court up till this point has still upheld the idea of affirmative action. One of the key measures it has adopted, however, in the decisions in the 2000s is that affirmative action uh, could not be employed in a way that explicitly guaranteed a certain number of spots to black applicants, a kind of quota, they said that's, that's unconstitutional. Um, and also said that uh, you cannot give uh, special treatment to black applicants in making decisions. What you have to do is have a overall judgment. So as Lee and I both know, uh, academic institutions um, admit students, not by just looking at their SAT scores or their LSAT scores, um, but by looking in addition to a whole range of other factors. Are they football players? Are they musicians? Um, are they interested in, in, in politics or poetics or whatever? Uh, were their parents alumni of the institution? Um, where do they live in the, in the country? Are they from rural areas or, or, or urban areas? They take all those things into account. Um, and what the court has said in the, in, the, in, five, in the whole series of five, four decisions, it is said that it is okay to take race into account as one of many factors in this way, uh, in the same way that these other considerations can be taken into account. But it cannot be taken into account as a separate and distinctive factor, either as a quota or as saying, we are going to give X amount of attention to this. Um, it's just to be taken into account in general. Um, and that's, that's the current state of the law. Um, with the court constituted the way it is today, um, there's absolutely no question that six of the current justices would have been dissenters in Baki and would have been dissenters in every affirmative action case since Baki. They were all clearly <laughs> opposed to affirmative action, strongly opposed to it. Um, and the question is whether they will act on that 
um, in the cases before it this term. It's a little bit like the question about abortion last term. Um, it was quite clear going into the spring of last year that the same six justices, none of them would have joined the opinion in Rome. Um, absolutely, they would have dissented in Rome. Um, but the question was whether they would be more moderate in approaching the issue of abortion now, now that they finally had a majority who were willing to overrule Rome. And it, it's clear in Alito's opinion, they had absolutely no interest in being temperate in their opinion. They flat out overruled Roe, unlike Chief Justice Roberts, who took a more moderate position. Um, the five of the others basically said, you know, we don't care. Abortion per se is not a constitutional right. Um, and so th what that tells us is that these justices um, are pretty determined to take advantage of their majority status and not to take intermediate or temporary positions. Um, and that's, to me, pretty scary, because I think affirmative action, as Lee does, has played a very important role, um, both in our academic institutions and in society more generally. And uh, taking that away uh, will have a, a really negative effect, frankly. Um, and that would be terrible. But these justices don't agree with that, clearly. And one of the reasons Lee and I wrote the book is to make the argument in a very, we hope, visible way about what should be the rationale that the court has to contest in thinking about affirmative action. Now, it's true that the four dissenters in Bakke rejected this argument, as did Justice Powell. But the problem is the court hasn't even heard the argument in all those years. And so that's part of the reason Lee and I decided to write the book, um, in part to energize people and perhaps to affect the court. You said, if I heard it right, that your book, book's basic argument says that the history of discrimination is the ju justification for affirmative action. But don't arguments have to be based before the Supreme Court in some passage of the Constitution? And I don't know that there's anything in the Constitution about discrimination. So what is the constitutional basis of your argument? Right. So a good, good question. Uh, to the extent someone is an originalist, uh, it was reasonably clear that the framers of the 14th Amendment uh, were not in any way, shape, or form thinking about what we deal with today as affirmative action, number one. They had no, no view of that specifically. So an originalist should not be claiming that the Equal Protection Clause forms original understanding uh, was meant to prohibit this. Beyond that, Congress at that time had laws like the Freedmen's Bureau Bill and so on that effectively were like affirmative action. They had, they had programs in effect to help former slaves and blacks more generally um, to deal with the disadvantages that they'd been subjected to. And at the time, nobody argued that violated the Equal Protection Clause. So the argument from the standpoint of, of original intent or understanding is, first of all, that it wasn't in any way part of the argument about the Equal Protection Clause. It's not what they were thinking about. And second of all, if you asked them about it, um, they probably would have said, yeah, this is okay. That's not what this is about. This is about racial discrimination against Blacks in particular, um, and not trying to 
uh, improve the, the lives of blacks, uh, which have been severely damaged by slavery um, at the time. So we do talk about that in the book. Um, and uh, again, because the book is short, we talk about that in maybe 10 pages. Um, we could write a whole book on it, but uh, we do address that question. The, the framers of the 14th Amendment did not attempt to be clear. They intentionally did not intend to be clear in their writing of these provisions. They knew that phrases like equal protection had no root in the Constitution before the 14th Amendment. And they knew that they were un unbelievably ambiguous. Um, did this mean that you couldn't discriminate against women, or you couldn't discriminate against uh, older people, or you couldn't discriminate against unmarried people? They, didn't, they, they never thought about any of that. It wasn't on the table. What they did think about is, we don't want to try to resolve this here. And so they put it into the Constitution a principle without actually trying to figure out what its meaning was. And, and for that reason, the idea of saying equal protection laws can't mean this is really not persuasive. And again, in part, that's not persuasive because the framers of the Equal Protection Clause in the 14th Amendment were fully aware that both the federal, federal and state governments already had in place policies uh, like the Freedmen, Freedmen's Bureau Bill um, that were designed to benefit Blacks. And they didn't, they didn't address that at all at the time. So I, I don't think that the kind of strict textualism uh, that Rehnquist used there or a kind of originalism uh, in a, applied in a fair manner can resolve this question. Um, they're both at best ambiguous. So I'd like to sort of change the direction of the discussion a little bit, if it's okay. Sure. Um, uh, my understanding is that at least one of the um, um, uh, cases that is currently before the Supreme Court uh, involves Asian Americans who are ha have been claiming or claiming in their uh, their case, um, that they've been discriminated against uh, in the Harvard admissions policy. Um, and I'd like to just throw out some, some figures that I quickly got together and, and, and get what your impression. Um, uh, the first is that um, in, in the, the recent U.S. Census, uh, Asian Americans represented 6.1% of the population. Blacks were 13.6%. So there are twice as many Blacks as Asians. Um, a couple of years ago, the undergraduate admissions for Harvard uh, indicated, and, and this, which was the, the latest year that I was able to find data for uh, quickly, 25.4% um, of the admissions to Harvard uh, consisted of Asian Americans, and 14.8% were African Americans. So it, it looks like uh, in, in terms of the proportion of Asian Americans in the U.S. population, that uh, they were uh, allowed, they were admitted at a rate that was four times as much as their representation in the country as a whole. And so I guess my question is, how can they make an argument uh, no matter what the internal processes of making admissions decisions might be, how can they really stand behind an argument that they're being discriminated against? And what is your thinking about the fact that uh, Asian Americans uh, are 
admitted uh, at about the twice the rate almost as as black Americans. You know, what do you think about that? So one aspect of this is that if in fact Harvard um, or any other institution is expressly intending to discriminate against Asian American applicants, I think that would be unconstitutional. That is, if they said we're going to have a limit of the number of Asian American applicants, <clears throat> I think the, the school would have to have a very strong justification for doing that. That would be like a quota uh, in the opposite direction. And I think the, the court would strike that down probably unanimously. The Harvard argues that the, the makeup of the, of the entering class at Harvard is under representative of the number of Asian applicants. Um, not so much because the Asian applicants are academically um, less likely to be qualified than others, but because um, they take into account a range of factors. And many of those factors are not held by Asian American applicants. Uh, for example, being the child of an alumnus or being a football player. Um, and what they say, and I suspect it's true, is that they don't in any way consciously discriminate against Americans for the sake of discriminating against Asian Americans, but that this is an incidental effect of the fact that whites in particular um, have a, uh, a greater representation in terms of the factors that they're interested in. So it's, it's what one would call a disparate impact. And the Supreme Court has made clear that laws or policies that have a disparate impact on a particular group are not discrimination. Uh, whether that's a good policy or not is open to question. But their basic view unequivocally has been that if a law has a disparate effect on, say, Blacks, um, that there are fewer Black policemen than there are Blacks in the society, um, that's not itself unconstitutional unless you can prove that's the result of intentional discrimination by the police department. And in Harvard, my guess is that this is not intentional discrimination against Asian Americans. Um, it's simply an incidental effect of the factors they take into account. If it is intentional discrimination against Asian Americans, I think that's unconstitutional. Or in the case of Harvard, which is a private institution, illegal. But Harvard denies that emphatically. So, I mean, do, do you think that anyone can make an argument that Harvard is discriminating against Asian Americans if their representation in the number of people who are admitted is uh, four times the uh, representation of Asian Americans in America in general? Well, you could make that argument, sure. If, if Asian American applicants looked at neutrally, they, they, they all applied saying they were white, right? And if they did, a significantly higher percentage of them would have been admitted, then that would give rise to at least an inference that what's going on here is racial discrimination against them. And so the fact that a lower percentage of them are admitted than are admitted from other groups could, could clearly be the result of racial discrimination against them. But as I said, the Supreme Court has made very clear that what they call incidental effects are not a violation of either Title VII, or a violation of the Constitution. And part of the reason for that is incidental effects exist everywhere. 
right? There are all sorts of parts of our society where blacks are over or underrepresented, um, where Asian Americans are being overrepresented or underrepresented, not because anyone's attempting to discriminate in their own minds, but because the criteria they're using, which are neutral, happen to be beneficial to one group rather than another. So the Supreme Court has said that's not illegal and that's not unconstitutional. That's what Harvard says is the situation here. Now, again, whether that's actually the case, I don't know. But they're quite adamant that uh, this is not the result of any kind of intentional discrimination against um, Asian Americans. It's simply the result of the application of the various um, factors they take into account in making decisions about application, about admission. But it has nothing to do with the negative about Asian Americans. Now, it's affirmative action, by the way, for Blacks, for example, um, presumably would have a negative effect on Asian Americans. If fewer Blacks would be admitted, if they didn't use affirmative action, then some of the students who would have been admitted to replace them would have been Asian Americans. But that's an incidental effect. Right? The desire to have a higher representation of Blacks, just the desire to have a higher representation of football players, um, is not unconstitutional just because it has an incidental effect on others. So you'd have to prove intent to discriminate. I was I was wondering, maybe you can help us with this, Kent. What was the uh, uh, Harvard rationale for for all of a sudden increasing the the uh, the uh, black population and, and undergraduates? Uh, who, what, what was John Monroe and 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 the, uh, the other people thinking? And was that uh, comparable to to uh, what the Supreme Court came up with or, or, or not. And also parenthetically, uh, the whole diversity uh, rationale, uh, uh, I, uh, I didn't understand that it, 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 it was a uh, side argument. And uh, I, I, I've used that as a rationale in all kinds of situations and, and, and felt very good with it. Well, back then they used the diversity argument as well as uh, you know, saying it was just the right thing to do. And we got in a little bit before the affirmative action really became official, uh, about a year before. But I mean, I think, Professor Stone, a lot of the Asian argument is that they what happens is that they take the criteria to a subjective level where, you know, the Asians, which ends up being discriminatory, you know, in terms of... Uh, uh, manner and 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 leadership and things like that. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think you know, to the extent that the people making these decisions are applying neutral factors. So they want they want people, for example, who are much more uh, intellectually and aggressively engaged, willing to fight with each other, um, to challenge one another. Um, it may be that Asian Americans are less likely to do that than other groups in society. I'm not saying that, but that may be the case. And if they're taking that into account, again, it would be a disparate effect. Whether Harvard is intentionally discriminating against Asian Americans is seems to me highly unlikely. Um, but I can't say it's not the case because I don't know. But even with respect to those kind of subjective criteria, um, they may correlate with legitimate factors that the institution is interested in. Yeah. Um, so if in students with a certain type of personality, not because they are black, white, Asian, or whatever, but because you, because you want a certain type of personality for legitimate reasons, 
and it has a disparate effect on some group that's another, that would not be illegal under at least existing American law, either under the statutes or under the Constitution. Now, again, you could change those laws easily enough, but if, if it's not the purpose of the lower representation to reduce the number of Asians uh, or Jews, for that matter, uh, it would not be illegal or unconstitutional under existing law. Um, a different court could, than the one we have now could reinterpret the statute, reinterpret the Equal Protection Clause and say disparate impact is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. But the, being cautious about that is that it would, all sorts of laws have disparate impacts and it would be a nightmare to have to deal with it. Um, but it, but it, so I think the, Harvard would have to demonstrate that their, the factors they are taking into account that lead to an underrepresentation of Asian Americans relative to their objective qualifications um, are both legitimate and have only an intended effect on Asian Americans. And you know whether that's true or not, I don't know. In terms of discrimination against Jews, by the way, um, there were no laws um, and no interpretation of the Constitution um, until relatively recently um, that would have said that discrimination based on uh, religion uh, violated um, federal law uh, or that it violated the Constitution. Um, that really was something that didn't exist until relatively later um, for private institutions. Just again, for state institutions, it would have been different. But for private institutions, there wasn't a Civil Rights Act that prohibited discrimination by private entities on the basis of race, religion, gender, and so on until 1964. So universities could discriminate legally on the basis of um, gender or religion uh, if they wanted to, if it was a private institution right. like Harvard. Right, right. <clears throat> Jerry. Uh, a personal note and then a question. A personal note is that 1956, uh, long before John Kennedy and affirmative action, I applied to Phillips Academy Andover. Uh, I'd grown up in segregated DC, very poor schools. Uh, I took the aptitude test and they said I was as bright as any of their kids, great. Uh, then they gave me the achievement test and I did so poorly, they gave it to me again, thinking I had somehow misinterpreted it. And I did just as poorly again, but they still admitted me. I was, I think the third or fourth black to uh, go into the class at that point in time. And although as a 13 year old kid, I certainly didn't realize I was having the benefit of affirmative action. In retrospect, that's exactly what happened. And I struggled uh, the first year and finally ended up you know, on the Dean's list and near the top of the class. Although my roommate, David Othmer down there may dispute that, so, but. <laughs> uh, and of course, from Andover, I was able to get into Harvard, Columbia Law, et cetera. My life would have been extremely different if Andover had not taken a chance on me, is what it amounts to. Now, on my question, however, is short of a constitutional amendment, given the makeup of the Supreme Court and what they will probably do in terms of basically overruling any type of affirmative action, what can Congress do at that point in time? Is there anything Congress can do? And especially looking at uh, McCarthy uh, going down to his seventh defeat right now, the total chaos that's going on in the House. <laughs> but let's say we had a, a logical Congress at some point in time. Um, probably not. If the Supreme Court holds that affirmative action 
violates the Constitution, um, Congress can't override that without amending the Constitution. So they could not do that. One of the points you made, though, about your experience is a really important one for people to understand. Um, two of them I want to make. First of all, affirmative action existed long before John Kennedy made, made his comment. Um, it just wasn't called affirmative action, and it wasn't publicly discussed. Um, he was the first one to make a, a public appeal to that principle. Right. Um, but University of Chicago Law School, I know from having been dean and going back and looking at, at records, was engaged in affirmative action long before um, uh, before Kennedy made that statement. And I assume lots of other institutions were doing it as well. Um, they didn't call it affirmative action. They were just, I guess, calling it doing justice or whatever. Um, one of the key questions about affirmative action that does need to be understood is, is it actually benefiting the students who are admitted under that policy? One of the claims, Justice Clarence Thomas makes this all the time, is that if you're admitting underqualified students who are black, then you were doing them a disservice. That they will do much less well at Harvard than they would have done at Boston College. And that will have effects on them emotionally and otherwise that will hurt them in the long run, and that you're therefore abusing these students in order to create the appearance of justice. And that's one of the strong non-constitutional arguments, the policy argument against affirmative action. And I had a, when I was um, a member of the faculty before I became dean, I was chair of our admissions committee. And <clears throat> uh, we decided to have a more aggressive policy of attracting minority students by inviting them to come out and visit the law school after they were admitted at our expense. And I had a group of, of minority students um, who assisted me in uh, organizing and supervising this. And so I would be meeting face to face with these minority students when they came in this context. And I knew what their LSAT score was, I knew what their undergraduate GPA was. And for some of them, not all of them, but for some of them, it was clear to me that they were going to be, in terms of admissions criteria, near the bottom of the class. And they were admit, being admitted despite that. And I was feeling nervous about encouraging them to come, wondering whether they would be better off going to Northwestern than coming to Chicago. And one of the students um, who was working very closely with me, and I trusted a lot. I told him this. Oh. And I asked him, what do you think about this? He said, you're wrong to be worrying about this. I'm the first person in my family ever to go to college, ever to go to law school. Um, I know my credentials put me near the bottom of the entering class, but I have had an extraordinary experience here. It will give me opportunities that I otherwise would not have had. Um, I've learned much more than I would have learned at a lesser school. Um, and this is not something you should feel concerned about. He later went on to be Chief Justice of the Texas Supreme Court. Um, and it was a real interesting moment for me um, to, he to hear that uh, and to satisfy me about that reservation I had about aggressive affirmative action. Um, so to that extent, you know, your experience 
in, in, the, in the school was representative, I think, of what, we, what is true for many minority students today. Liz. Um, yeah, I have a couple of questions. Uh, one is when you were talking about uh, disparate effects, and hang on, I need to get myself in gallery view so I can see everybody. Um, I that kind of raised a red flag for me because I'm hearing what you're saying about oh my heavens it would be you know awful to kind of make that into some kind of law uh, at the same time though it sounds like a lot of discrimination could hide under the rubric of disparate effects is is that I, I have an, I have a couple of comments but I'm just wondering if that's yeah I mean one one of the when the Supreme Court decided this issue. Um, back in the late 70s it was it involved a uh, a police officer test to be admitted to being a police officer that a significant much higher percentage of, of white applicants passed than black applicants and the blacks represented by the NAACP challenged the constitutionality of this saying that having such a disparate effect on black applicants was a violation of the Constitution. The Supreme Court, with conservatives on one side and liberals on the other, took this view that mere disparate effect is not enough. Because otherwise, all, all sorts of laws would be challenged, driver, driving tests and basically everything. Um, and, uh, and that would be insane. So the, if you're challenging it, you have to prove that in this case, the police department adopted this test in order to discriminate against blacks. So you're right that that standard, which has been the law as a constitutional matter ever since then, um, has a significant harmful effect on many groups in society in, in different contexts. Um, and that's why the dissenters in the case, it was a 5-4 decision, the dissenters in the case strongly objected to it. But the majority position has retained it's um it's influence um i just wanted to make a couple uh, again these are kind of personal experiences um as a woman of course i'm a minority except of course i'm a majority but we'll forget about that and i'm thinking of something that happened to me as an undergraduate at radcliffe and also happened to me at the point that i was about to get my phd at yale okay so at radcliffe um when I defended my undergraduate dissertation, I was told afterwards that basically I hadn't been scrappy enough. You know, I hadn't kind of argued, you know, well, you know, it's whatever. I mean, I, I still got my degree, I got my magna, whatever, but, but that was the feedback. Mm -hmm. um, when I was at the point of uh, getting to defend probably in the months before my dissertation, um, I was pregnant. And one of my dissertation advisors said, oh, well, you'll have an easier time if you're pregnant when you defend. I'd already, I had the baby in hand by the time I defended. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, and I'm sure that anybody in this group who identifies as a minority in some way has 10 million stories just like mine. So this is why disparate effects kind of, you know, kind of gets me wrong. And I'm very glad that there were four people who said that's nonsense. So. Right. No, I mean, I, 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 there's no question, but that it has had a significant impact on justice and injustice in our society. Um, because disparate effect, A, may be a cover for discrimination. 
And B, it may be that the reason for it is not important enough to justify causing disparate effect, even if the purpose was not to discriminate. Mm -hmm. um, but the court basically said, we don't want to get into that. It's mm -hmm. just a nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, and they're right that the law is much easier to enforce given their position, but it's also leaves us with a less, a less just society than we otherwise would have. It, it seems to be the, the whole process of interviewing. Uh, and I have a daughter who, who was interviewed by Oxford. She was interviewed by Stanford. She was interviewed by Harvard. Uh, with these interviews conducted by alumni uh, is a process that's somewhat akin to totem polling. And, and I think that's kind of what the Asian plaintiffs, as I understand their position is in the Supreme Court case, is that they're, they're being interviewed by people who are looking at these personality uh, attributes of leadership, et cetera, and, and using those and that that's not a statistically neutral uh, form of how to go about admitting people uh, because it's uh, allowing the prejudices of the people who are doing the selecting uh, to influence the process improperly. Uh, and I wonder if you could get to how maybe there could be a statistics-based neutral standard uh, that would overcome that and, and sort of get at the kind of numbers that uh, Doug Shapiro was talking about uh, on percentages. I think there should be such a, a standard. Um, you know, as in the, the case involving the, the police, um, given the substantial dif difference in the, in the test, you'd want, I'd want to know, let's see this test. I mean, is this, is this actually a test that is appropriate? And the same thing is true for interviewing, uh, as you say, and it may even, in the interviewing case, it may even be some of the interviewers have a discriminatory attitudes, even if they don't know it, that they do. You can take this factor of disproportionate effect into account in, in deciding whether there's a presumptive uh, impropriety. Um, you still have to prove the impropriety, but the statistics alone won't necessarily do it. It, puts, it can shift the burden um, under those statutes to the employer uh, to demonstrate that the disparate impacts is not the result of their intent, um, but it's a result of other factors beyond intent. Um, but obviously the more dramatic they are, uh, the more suspicious one has to be in terms of whether they are in fact incidental or intentional. Well, as a trial lawyer, I can tell you burden shifting is an incredibly important thing in how a case turns out or whether or not you can make a case in the first place. I mean, the, where the presumptions lie and where the burdens lie is, is really outcome determinative. No, absolutely. And that's that's part of what the dissenters in, in this case, in the Supreme Court police case argued. Um, but uh, the Supreme Court in interpreting the 14th Amendment has essentially rejected that proposition. No, I'm aware of that. Laws can take it into account anytime they want. And um, Title VII and uh, 1983 have been interpreted as statutes somewhat differently than the 14th Amendment. All right, thank you, Professor, so much for coming on. My pleasure, it was a pleasure. And, and um, you guys are terrific, it was really fun. Okay, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Okay, bye-bye, everybody. Take care. Bye. That was Jeffrey Stone. He has co-authored the upcoming book, A Legacy of Discrimination, The Essential Constitutionality of Affirmative Action. 
and the book is coming out in February. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or from wherever you get your podcast. Our podcasts also stream on WIOXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.